Hi, everyone, and welcome to the BPD Bravery Show. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Today's guest is Erin O'Brien, in some circles known as Meryl Streep of Therapeutic Roleplay, but in most circles also known as Erin, a DBT therapist in Delaware County, Pennsylvania. Erin's first introduction to DBT did not happen through graduate studies or a book. She was recommended to a DBT skills group by a former therapist when she was in her early 20s, and that experience changed her life. So we will be discussing DBT. DBT pros, cons, great things about it, and some things that are maybe not as great. And in particularly, we will be talking about the DBT skill called radical acceptance. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. Hi, and welcome to the BPD Bravery Show, where we discuss tips, strategies, struggles, triumphs, and success stories related to borderline personality disorder. Here is your host, Faye Green. Hey there, warriors. Before we dive into our episode today, I wanted to take a moment to give a special shout out to our wonderful sponsor, HopeForBPD.com. If you've been a part of this journey, you know that I don't just bring you stories and expert advice. I also am on the lookout for resources that can make your journey with BPD more manageable and more hopeful. Hope for BPD is that resource, a beacon of hope. Whether you're personally affected by BPD or you're supporting a loved one through their journey, this platform is here to assist you in every step of the way. Hope for BPD provides confidential and compassionate treatment consultation, information and research about evidence-based treatments, ongoing, solution-focused, and non-judgmental support for individuals with BPD and family members, and so much more. BPD isn't something you have to face alone or in the dark. So visit their website at hopeforbpd.com to learn more about their services and find that glimmer of hope you've been looking for. Because remember, no matter how tough it gets, there's always hope. And now back to our show. How were you introduced to DBT? So in my... um my early 20s after I had graduated from college, you know, I was my mental health, I think really ramped up after that the struggles that I was having, because, you know, it was a transition and I don't do well with change, which by being a therapist, I've learned a lot of people don't do well with change. Um, But it was really difficult for me, I felt lonely. And I think, just kind of um, directionless. I mean, my degree wasn't getting me a full time job. And so I was having a really hard time with that. And at that point, I had been seeing my therapist, uh, Jean, for a couple years. And she was always somebody who would like introduce me to other types of therapy. Um, she had me do exposure therapy for OCD, which is a diagnosis that I have. And then she said, have you heard about DBT? And I had never heard about that. And she said, you know, it's like a lot of skills. It's a group. And maybe this is something that might help you. And I... um you know, like the household that I grew up in and just my childhood, there was a lot of chaos, uh, a lot of chaos. And I think that's fair to say, you know, my parents would agree with that. And I didn't have the skills that I needed, like to, to manage my emotions. My emotions would be zero to a hundred. You know, I had a hard time handling being disappointed or rejected. And so my therapist, Jean, you know, got me set up with this place near me for DBT. And I did the intake and it's a group, you know, that I was doing and I did that for six months and then I finished the DBT group and it, it changed everything for me. And I, I say that all the time when I I lead DBT groups now I'm DBT certified, but 
when I do that, I always tell people like this, this changed my whole life. I never before DBT would have thought I could have changed my own emotions. I had no idea what radical acceptance was. Um, I didn't know how to really be present and not try and change the moment because sometimes it maybe isn't helpful to. Um, I didn't have any idea how to regulate being in a crisis. Um, so it really changed the way that I operated. It helped me learn those things. And at the time I was not a therapist. I hadn't been to school for being a therapist. I didn't go to grad school yet. And it took years. And finally, I remember one time I said to my dad and then my therapist, Gene, I said, you know, what if I went back to school to be a therapist, like fully expecting them to be like, well, but that would be expensive. And they were both so for it. And I ended up applying to grad schools, right? Not thinking that I would get to get accepted. And I did. And so anyhow, a long story of saying, like, I came to DBT because my therapist, Gene, uh, had told me about it. And it changed everything for me. I wouldn't be here if I didn't have DBT. Mm -hmm. Just a remark. I mean, to have a therapist that you can go to for that many years and you feel like you're making progress yeah. is amazing. <laughs> yeah. No, I've had I've had a few therapists. The she was the second therapist that I ever had, and it's actually so not you know, to make it a depressing story. So Jean actually passed back in October, and I had known her for 19 years, and she um, she met me when I was just like a, a baby before I was even 21. Which in my my you know being nearly 40, that's being a baby to me, and you know, she changed everything for me, but we stopped being really therapist and client many years before that, because I started working with a trauma, a trauma therapist. And, you know, he was somebody I needed that was specialized and she, she was not specialized in trauma, but we obviously, we kept in touch. We got very close and she became essentially a second mother to me. And so her loss back in October was really difficult, you know, for obvious reasons. Um, I still feel like to this day, like I'm trying to contend with it because I guess I never really stopped to consider what would my life look like without Jean. I guess I saw her as sort of being almost immortal in, mm -hmm. in my mind, like a, like mythological, you know, and <laughs> just always was there. And so I think I owe her so much, you know, I feel indebted to her. Um, I got to speak at her service and everything, which was really, I think, important for me as in terms of closure and, you know, and so like, it's um, actually even differently. I will see if I can show you this. I have a button on my shirt here. All of my tattoos that I got on my sleeve, a lot of them are in relation to Jean um, oh, wow. because she, she rode horses. And so I don't know if you can see the horseshoe. And so mm -hmm. I got this horseshoe on my arm and it says, isn't it wild? Because she used to say that all the time. She, she was also from New York, New York state. <laughs> so she had that accent and be like, isn't it just wild is what she would say to me. And, or she was really upset to be like, isn't that just awful? But isn't it just wild was something she always said. So I got that. And then, um, you know, just some other flowers that represent her. And so she obviously changed and influenced so much for me and was probably one of the most important people in my life aside from parents and, you know, some friends. So yeah. That's a beautiful sleeve, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I, mean, I actually got listeners. it done in like uh, like two months. Like it was like, I got this done over the period of like, it was three sessions. So like nine, nine hours maybe. But yeah, I also have on here, um, I like mythology and 
I love the goddess Rhiannon. She's a Welsh goddess and there's like her story is just fascinating. It's also what inspired um, the Stevie Nicks song, you know, Rhiannon. And my mom told me oddly enough, she wanted to name me Rhiannon as a baby. And Rhiannon is depicted as riding a horse, which reminds me of Jean. And so I, also the inspiration on the tattoo is Rihanna. And so I have like a badger that's representing her. Um, I have the horseshoe, of course, the crystals. She's represented by the moon. So I have this really cool like um, hourglass and you can see the sand and then there's the moon there. And um, this, I just wanted for fun. It's one of those uh, for like a Ouija board, just because I like the way that it looked. But um, yeah, so a lot of inspiration went into that. Uh, Jean, my grandparents, I try to really think those things through when I'm getting tattoos and stuff, like wanting to have something special. So you asked me how I got into DBT. <laughs> I just covered like six other topics. Like, <laughs> Yeah, but did you design the tattoos? Because I know that you are artistic, so. I am, yeah. So the tattoo artist that I worked with, um, Demera, she is actually here where I live outside of Philly. And um, I have, already had four other tattoos. So I have, it's probably hard to see, but I have this feather on my neck. I have mm -hmm. Sanskrit that goes all the way around my neck. I have mm -hmm. Irish Gaelic on this wrist. It just says work of art. And then I have this tree on my forearm over here and I like the tree, but I started to not love it as much as I used to. And I went to her and was like, what could we do? And she was like, well, because you have this fine arts background, I really want to collaborate. So for weeks, I made this Pinterest board and I just started like sending all these ideas. Um, I took pictures of like flowers. I have a spider on here that actually we, we took from a picture. There is a spider that was in my garden all summer and I didn't bother, I'm, I'm saying he, but I didn't bother it, it didn't bother me. And so I was like, okay, like we're friends. You're just gonna hang out on my tech. <laughs> as long as you don't come in the house, we'll be okay. And um, you know, it was almost like this, uh, in DBT like this, we can both exist at the exact same time and we don't have to bother each other. So I got that drawn on the arm from a picture that I had taken of this, this spider. Um, I mean, it's just the entire thing is like a patchwork of just meaning and, you know, like the moth, like, I don't know mm -hmm. why I just wanted the moth, you know, the flowers, actually these particular flowers, um, there was this uh, park where my grandparents used to spend a lot of time with my mom's parents growing up. Um, my grandfather actually passed just at Christmas. He was 95, which is incredible to live to be 95. And he was also very influential on me, um, as was my grandmother. And there is this park near them where uh, it's like a giant lake and man-made lake. And we used to go camping there and he would take us out on a boat and fishing. And it just always makes me think of summer. And Demera had said, well, what if you found like a flower that represented your grandparents? And I found, you know, I did some research and I found that there are wildflowers that are specific, I guess, to that lake. And I found pictures of them, sent them to her. And I was like, I think this is the flower because that that place reminds me of summer. It reminds me of childhood. It reminds me of my grandparents. Um, so I'm somebody who's very nostalgic. Like I have every greeting card ever given to me since the age of like four until now, <laughs> just because I can't let go of those things. So this is a lot of representation on my arm of just different people in my life. And, you know, I may keep going up the arm. Maybe I'll add some things on there for other people too, but it's yeah. Beautiful. <laughs> I you. mean, a lot of people have uh, sleeves, but 
Mm-hmm. Not many have like really beautiful sleeves. This is a real nice one. <laughs> Thank you. I know. Here, I'll do like a slow so everybody can see uh, the, cri- the snail, mm-hmm. a peacock feather. Um, yeah, you can see the hummingbird. Oh, like wow. this was, let me see if I can do it. This was the original tree. To put my oh, I see. And okay. so we added limbs. We added the honey, the, the little badger that's behind it, the spider that's here, uh, the fern, the mushrooms that are on my wrist. Um, I mean, I'm I'm in love with it. And I said to people, it's funny because now when I look down and see my arm, it's odd to say, but it feels like it's complete. Like I must have just been walking around with like half my arm missing, and I didn't know. <laughs> and so I look down and I'm like, oh, there you are. Like it feels like it was always meant to be there. You know, it just took time to show up, you know? Yeah. Yeah. There's so much meaning behind that for me. Yeah. Do you have anything related to DBT on your sleeve or not? Yeah. I don't. Although it's funny you say that because, um, I always joke with clients in my group. I'm like, if you don't start remembering these skills, I'm going to get them tattooed on your arm. I'm like, a DBT (laughs) skill. And I'm always like kidding. I'm like, we'll do a group trip to the tattoo studio and get everybody to, and they're always looking at me. They know I'm kidding, but that's sort of how I guess like I am as a therapist. Like my humor is just there all the time. Um, I don't, but I think, well, so what I actually used to have under the tree on my, my arm with the sleeve, it used to be Latin and it used to say all things change and we must change with them. And that mm-hmm. is very DBT oriented, right? It's, One of the constants we know is change. And we think about that in a dialectical sense, that things are always changing. They're always evolving. And the reason I had gotten that originally was because to me, it was a reminder that I needed that even when I feel stuck, or even I feel like other people seem stuck, the world seems stuck, society seems stuck, things are always moving forward. It's always changing and change is not inherently bad. So we don't know, right? It could change to a point where you feel happier, you like something better, Um, you know, change is possible. And so that I did have, it's now sadly covered up because the writing was so tiny. It started to get a little faded and fuzzy and you couldn't read it anymore. Um, It's covered up by a fern leaf right now, but I guess you could say technically it's still under there. So yes, all things change and we must change with them. But maybe I'll consider a DBT-based tattoo. I'd have to think about what I would want to get. I also had these temporary tattoos made because um, actually I have a bowl of them right here. I'll show you a little demo. So I, I was talking to my clients and on my, my Instagram, this is actually one of my most popular posts. I was saying, you know, when I had panic attacks, I would always sort of lose my appetite for a couple days. It was just like this almost hangover feeling. I don't know if you've ever experienced that where like, I was so on edge, like I guess worried about another panic attack. And so I wouldn't have an appetite. I wouldn't want to eat, but you have to eat because you need energy. And so the one food that I will eat, even if I've been like anxious, is frozen pancakes. So I keep them in the freezer because I'm like, I will eat. I know I will heat them up and I can get myself to eat pancakes. So I always tell clients, figure out what it is that you would eat, even if you didn't really have an appetite and then stock it up in your house. So you have it. So I created this post and um, I called them, uh, it was like anxiety pancakes, I think is what I called them or my depression pancakes, panic pancakes. That's what I called Mm -hmm. it. So I got all these temporary tattoos made. This one it's backwards, but it says spaghetti with grief. So that's Aww, one of the temporary like tattoos. Anxiety ramen. Because I was like, you can call whatever you want. 
This is sadness smoothie. There's a little smoothie <laughs> face on it. Depression donuts. I know, right? Some people were like, I want to get these as tattoos. I was like, listen, I can't really tell you to go do that. But if you want to do that, you go ahead and do that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like pancakes for me, this is another funny one. I got these stickers made. It's got a vanilla ice on it, the wrapper. It says, mm -hmm. all right, stop, regulate, and listen. And then my logo and everything on the gold chain. Oh, yeah. So I'm using the fine arts degree to make things <laughs> for the practice. Oh, cool. But I know, right? I was like, listen, I if... If ever I can open up like a Etsy store, I'll sell my temporary tattoos and I made these, I bean, we got these mindful you. bracelets. Yeah. Yeah. I had um somebody I did a podcast for, her name was Grace, and she does this trauma dump mm -hmm. pod. And I asked her, she makes bracelets too. And I asked her to make these bracelets that say, uh, be skillful on them because my clients, I was like, they were having a hard time remembering to use their skills. And I said, well, what if you had like a visual cue, something you could wear, not a tattoo. I'm not going to tell you to get a tattoo, but if you want to, you can, but a bracelet, right? That when you see it, you're like, oh yeah, I can do this. I can be skillful. So I got them made with like the friendship style bracelet letters and mm -hmm. they're super cute. I sent them to all of my clients. They're like, yes, I'm wearing them. So it's like, we're all like in a tribe, like wearing these bracelets. And I was like, maybe I'll get some other ones made that like funny sayings I often tell people in DBT and we can sell them too. So, you know, maybe that'll be added to my <laughs> an Etsy store, temporary tattoos and friendship bracelets. Yeah, no, I, I think those temporary tattoos are awesome. And you already have them. So right? all you gotta do is ship them. I know. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you never know. Like, I'm always looking for like, okay, what's another way that I could do something creatively, um, you know, as a therapist, but mainly as a person? Like, how do I get to use my creative skills? So Etsy store is a great outlet. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> there we go. Do you do you also do uh, groups or is it one in one DBT? I do both. So I, um, I do it's called adherent. It's called adherent DBT. But there's lots of ways to teach and learn DBT as a therapist, mm -hmm. as, you know, just somebody looking for that type of therapy. Um, but in my practice, so I got um, in October my Linehan board certification. So, you know, Marshall Linehan developed DBT. Um, I've been doing DBT for 10 years now since I graduated um, from school. And um, it was really important to me, I think, to pursue that because just the fact that I've been doing it so long and it's the only type of therapy that I do, I was like, it makes sense. And it's really rigorous to get that. It can be very challenging. It took me a year and a half, um, but I got it. And I'm the only one in my county right now to have that designation. And I think there's only like 500 of us in the entire country that have it. Um, mm -hmm. But I do the model of DBT. So I have individual clients and we do individual DBT. So we're working on diary cards. We're working on their target behaviors. Um, we are addressing like skills deficits, like what skills do you need right now? And then they also come to one of my DBT groups, um, which meets virtually, I do two, two separate groups a week. And, you know, I love doing the groups because I think when I was younger, I wanted to be a teacher. So the groups are very skills driven. So I mm -hmm. am teaching. I put together all these colorful slideshows because I'm like, I don't want to read off handouts to you. That's boring. Um, and I think, and also I do phone coaching, which is that is really unique to DBT where it's, you know, and, and whenever I tell clients they are like, wait, you want me to text you? I'm like, yes. So seven days a week, they can reach out to me. They can text me and say, Hey, Aaron, you know, I had a fight with so-and-so and I tried to use this skill, but I'm having a hard time. I could use some coaching. And I talk to him for maybe 10 minutes on the phone. 
I walk them through like, here's how you use the skill and, you know, and, and all of that is part of that model. And so I offer the whole model of what I do with DBT. Um, I'm working on building my own DBT consultation team with other, you know, therapists or psychiatrists that are doing it because it is something I'm so passionate about. You know, it changed, like I said, it changed everything for me. It just the trajectory of my life and, and teaching me skills and stuff that I, I don't think I would have had otherwise. So you're doing it the way Marsha Lenahan intended it to be yeah. with a with a phone access with phone yep. and with a other therapist all of that <laughs> yeah awesome. and i i built my whole my own practice like a year and a half ago and the reason i called it you know the dbt center of media is because even though not everybody might know what dbt means the people looking for that will know what it means and I was able to, you know, successfully build up my practice rather quickly because there was no one in my my county that's really doing DBT. And DBT is considered evidence-based, you know, so they've they've done it so many times it's proven to work, but when we follow the model. And I think sometimes I hear one of the criticisms about DBT is this adherence to the model, and I get that, I do. Um, the reason why people, I think, feel that way is because sometimes we do need to be flexible, right? And that's a dialectic too. It's like, I can follow a model and have flexibility when it's needed. You know, there are times that we need to be flexible with it. So that's, I think, one of the criticisms of DBT itself is this adherence to the model. They see it maybe as being too rigid. But I also think, you know, for me, like DBT allows me some flexibility because it's almost slightly unorthodox as a therapy. Like for instance, in studying for the exam that I had to take to get certified, a lot of um, Marshall Linehan's books, so it's like, um, I think it's the borderline personality disorder, like a cognitive behavioral therapy and the treatment of that. And it's this classic book. And like in reading that, she talks a lot about how, like you may go out into the community with a client if it's in the spirit of helping them use skills. Um, like I could go to an AI meeting if my client was going to one and they needed support. Um, I have done things like that because I look at it as me helping you to take those skills and put them to use in real life. And mm -hmm. sometimes we need that, right? It's not to be a crutch to anybody. It's just to say, okay, like you're having trouble doing blank. Like, let me see if I can make time and do that with you. Yeah. So as you can see, I could probably talk for hours about DBT. <laughs> I'll play a lot of things. <laughs> do you have a favorite skill? Yes, I do. Well, I have a couple, but I'll pick, I'll pick one. Um, I guess my top favorite skill uh, is radical acceptance, which I know some what? people you're facing because some people hate radical is because you, you don't like the rat you find it. It's not, I don't like it. It's just so difficult. Like once I, <laughs> but see, I think it's difficult. I do. But the, I feel like, okay, to toot my own horn, the way that I teach it, I think it does end up making sense. And the way that I try to approach it is asking people, what does it mean to accept something? Because usually with that word, right, we have all these negative associations with the idea of accepting something. And I think mm -hmm. it's also because more often than not, people are like, you have to get over something, you have to accept something. And I'm like, when we tell anybody you have to do anything, I guarantee you internally, there is some part of us that rebels. It's like, you want me to do what? I'm not doing that, mm -hmm. right? Because someone told you, you have to accept it. So I'm like, you, I tell people, listen, you don't have to accept anything. I can't make you accept anything. If you want to accept something, you get to choose that. Like we do get to choose that. 
um, even when I think about trauma, I'm like in trauma, there's that lack of autonomy, right? A lack of choice. And so when we try to get people who've been through trauma to accept it, and we're like, you should accept it, you have to accept it. I see us as no better than the people that traumatize them because now I'm forcing you again to try to do something. So I try to explain it in terms of what it is not, which it's not approval. It's not agreement. It is to me, it's simply acknowledgement. And I think about like on every day, right? We already are accepting things and we don't even know that we're doing it. It's like if you showed up to, um, you know, your coffee shop and you wanted to get a donut that morning for breakfast and you show up and they're all out of donuts, you say, okay, I'll take the croissant, right? You, usually you don't be like, oh my God, you don't have donuts. And then like start flipping things, right? You just you take something else. <laughs> Hopefully you not. Over, hopefully not, right? But the good news is you just practiced radical acceptance and you didn't even know you did it because you accepted in the moment, there's no donut. So I can't change that. They can't maybe change that. So the only thing I can do is pick a different dessert, go somewhere else and get a donut, you know, maybe flip out because there's no donuts. I could do that. But we've already accepted, right, in a small way that something we know to be true is we can't change the fact that in this moment there are no donuts here, which is very sad. There should always be donuts. Um, but I also try to point that out to people. And, like, the good news is you've already accepted things. You just maybe didn't know you were doing it, mm. right? It's the harder things I get, the larger things in our lives that we struggle with acceptance of. And I remind people, it's like, again, you don't have to accept that. I ask them to like consider, okay, if you accepted it, what do you think that would do for your life? Like, let's try and imagine what it might change. And I know when I first learned radical acceptance, I was like, there's no way in hell I'm going to be able to do this. Because I've been through like trauma and I was like, how are you going to do this? I did realize though, through a lot of acceptance, it gave me freedom because it meant I was just in a very factual way, recognizing there are things I cannot change. No matter what I try to do, I can't change it. One of those big things is other people. I cannot force anyone to be different. And I tell my clients all the time, when you're changing, it's not because I am doing something to force you to change or be different. You are choosing that. You know, you are, you are doing the work. I'm just maybe on the path, like guiding you down it, but I'm not actually forcing you to be different. And so I think when we explore acceptance in terms of like choice, you know, you've already been doing it. You don't even know that you're doing it. I think it actually helps a lot of people come to terms with radical acceptance. You know, I mean, I don't know how you, how you learned it, but I've heard some people try to teach it in terms of like, you know, it's kind of like not approving, but like, I guess, like agreeing that we can't change things. And like, that's true, but you're more so acknowledging it, right? It's like when you see, you know, like those commercials on TV, like I hate to bring it up, but the one that's like about the dogs and the shelter and you're just like, oh my God, it's so sad. And it's mm -hmm. like Sarah McLaughlin comes on and, you know, her whole blah, blah, blah. I always use that as an example because I'm like, you know, we don't want to accept that there are people and there are things that are living that struggle in our world. And yet we know that we can try and change some things, right? We can volunteer, donate money, donate our time. It's not bound to alleviate the entire problem. And I think there's some part of us that acknowledges that, right? But we also acknowledge at the same time is that maybe there's something in a way I could contribute and do that might actually make a difference for someone. And so in a lot of ways, like we are practicing that radical acceptance, right? 
and DBT is always that balance between acceptance and change, like acknowledging the things I know I cannot change and then figuring out what could I change if anything, how do I problem solve that? And I could talk forever again about radical acceptance and DBT, <laughs> but it is, I know I'm, I had to go with that as my favorite skill because there's been so many people in my life, you know, family things. And I've had not had to, I've chosen to accept it and acknowledge it because I know otherwise I feel stuck. I always ask people too, like, what does it feel like to reject reality? And they're always like, well, like I notice, like I don't make progress. I feel like I can't move. I feel frozen. And I'm like, that's because we are frozen. We are frozen with this idea that, you know, I can't do anything. And maybe there's certain aspects, you're right, we can't do something about that. And right, the other part of the dialectic is there could be some things we could do in that moment. So yeah, is there something with radical acceptance that makes it easier? Because for me, why I was laughing and when my eyes were like, what the heck? What? Is that it's so difficult to actually accept it. I know I have to accept it, but to actually See, that's right there. It, you said I have to accept it. And I always catch yeah. clients when it's, because that's the thing is like, if I said you have to accept it, I automatically feel like whether you know it or not, you're not gonna wanna accept it because you're telling yourself you have to do it. When I change that language, right, to would you wanna accept it? And it's okay if the answer is no, right? I tell people it's okay if the answer is no, because until that person, I think reaches a point where they're like, maybe this is something I would like to try and accept it does make a difference. And sometimes we're not, we're not there yet. We're not in, you know, maybe in a certain place in our lives where we feel ready to accept. And I know there's so many things it's taken me years, even after DBT to get to the point where I was like, okay, I feel ready now to accept this. But I think you were asking me is like, how do you make that, that small adjustment? And I like to think practically, I'm like, well, if I were going to be accepting, let's say of um, maybe I'm going to just, pick one infidelity of a partner, right? That's a hard thing to accept. We'll just go, we'll go for the, the hardest part that we could pick. Yeah, that is very not donuts or beyond donuts, right? <laughs> Let's say that yeah. like, that's something you were facing and I'm not going to make it seem so simple as like, well, you just have to accept it because instinctively, right? We're like, I'm not accepting shit. I'm sorry. I'm not accepting anything. Yeah. Um, but in some ways it's like, if you did feel at some point, like you wanted to accept it, I would ask, well, what behaviors or actions would you be taking that would show acceptance to you and the other person? And somebody might say, well, I would be probably checking things less, meaning like wanting to check like where they're going, wanting to check their location, wanting to check their phone. Because the checking right suggests we may not be accepting. And that's still okay, because I think you get to a place in your own time, in your own way. Um, you might, you know, decide that you wanted to see a couples counselor together. And that could show, I think, acceptance. Cause you're saying, I would like to try and, and salvage this. I would like to try and work on this. Um, and I don't mean again, to make it seem simplified. These are just steps that I would be thinking of that would, would demonstrate some kind of acceptance. Um, and a different example, if it helps from my own life, like with my family is, you know, my parents are divorced. Um, they separated when I was maybe five or six got back together a couple years later. And then eventually they divorced when I was a teenager. And, you know, it was, it was chaotic in a word, it was difficult and challenging. And that was something that I was trying to always accept, except that 
my parents are flawed, just like everybody else. My parents struggled just like other people too. It does not excuse behaviors or continued behaviors. It just says this is in the past and I can't change it and they can't change it no matter what we try to do. So things that I can do is I can, you know, continue to go to therapy, um, which I still do. And I also think it's for me trying not to hold a grudge where I'm like continuing to want to, let's say, punish them in some way because of the things that happened. Like seeking that vengeance isn't going to make the situation any better. And if anything, it actually harms me more because it keeps me stuck in the pain. And so a lot of that for me was um, making my own life, like not allowing the whole reason I started going to therapy when I was 19 was because I did not want to end up like my parents or other adults in my life where they had never done anything for themselves and they were miserable and things were struggling with them. And it was hard. It's like, I don't want that for me. And so going to therapy, right, in a way was like rebellion against what could have been a pattern where I could end up that way. And so my acceptance in that situation, a lot of that was, um, you know, recognizing that I didn't know what it was like to also be married and be an adult when I was a kid. I wouldn't have known that. And recognizing that for both my parents, like, even if let's say they needed DBT, they, it was less relevant and prevalent than it is now. So how would they have accessed that? You know, like it's these things where I'm like trying to check the facts, which is, you know, another DBT skill and say, okay, so that is true. And I can't fault them that they didn't have access to the same kinds of therapy that we have access for now. Um, my parents have gone to therapy since then. And that to wow. me is also, to me, yeah, it's, it's acceptance. And I think a lot of that is also setting boundaries, like letting people know, you know, what to expect from me. So it's like, if you're going to do blank, I may not continue to come here. I may not continue to spend as much time here. And it's not about, you know, trying to control the situation. It's about protecting myself, you know, and recognizing that I may not be able to change you. And I can also protect me and stand up for me in ways that maybe I felt like I, I didn't get as a child. Yeah. So I don't know if that maybe that hope that answers the question that we started with. Very well, because when I think of when I had a tough time uh, with yeah. radical acceptance, I've had one in very recently. But one of the first times that I did it, and it took me a long time to accept it, is very similar it's with my parents. Mm -hmm. I grew up, I'm I'm the oldest of 12. I grew up in a cult, oh, the wow. emotional neglect. And I don't want to go into details, but I didn't have yeah. an easy childhood. And it, mm -hmm. I was really mad at my parents for a long time. I, until I got to accept that a lot of the circumstances was because the way they grew up and what they knew. And they were literally like mm -hmm. kids when they had me. So right. they were growing up together with me. And coming to accept that instead of always being mad at my past and the parents and right. it's their fault, it's not going to help me. No. But I wish it didn't take such a yes. long time to get to the acceptance part is what I'm trying to get to. Right. Well, that's also, if you think about it, we are not really taught at a young age, what does it mean to accept? Because I always thought of it as agreement and approval. And I thought, well, how would I ever accept these things? Because I'm never going to want to agree with it or approve of it. And I'm always like as a therapist, very cognizant of language. And I teach my my groups that, you know, there is a language that comes with rejection of reality. So non-acceptance, words like should, have to, um, must, 
those are all those absolutes where it's like, well, I should be over this. And it's like, okay, but who said? And also, you know, has anyone ever gotten through something by someone saying you should be over that? <laughs> no, they haven't. Right. I want an example. Like who has ever done that? No. And so, you know, always, never, those kinds of things. It's like when someone's like, you're always lying. I'm like, technically that means this person has legitimately lied since birth. Everything about them is a lie. Their name is not their, you see what I mean? And I'm like, we say that usually in a, a moment where we're really mad about something, but I'm trying to remind people, like, just think about like what you're saying is that this person lies frequently. It doesn't mean they're always lying. And so we can accept this person has an issue with lying. And there are also times where they have told me the truth. So it's like that balance, right, I think, too, between those two opposites. And so much of us, I think, wants to just always decide always, right, between one or the other, because it's what we're comfortable with. And to me, yeah. acceptance is that that area between these these polar opposites, these the conflict, right, between those things. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, radical, no, for me, that's why I was shocked. Radical acceptance, for me, is just really difficult. Mm -hmm. Like, it's a great skill, and yeah. it's awesome once you... Once you get to it and you accept something, it makes it makes life so much easier. Right. But right. getting there could sometimes be a struggle. Right. That's it. Well, that's the other thing I think is that people will try and accept things that haven't happened yet, you know, or like they'll try to accept by like predicting the future. So, you know, I'm going to be 40 next September. I'm not a mom. And I could sit here and say, well, I'm never going to be a mother because, you know, as women, when I get older, like that does change things. But how do I know? How do I know, right? I can't predict the future. None of us can. And so, yes, there are sometimes absolutes, like there could be medical conditions and stuff that almost definitively mean I could not become a mother. But I don't, you know, fortunately have that. And so I don't know that with certainty. And that's where I think, you know, what we're trying to accept, we're not trying to accept things that are just, you know, assumptions that maybe aren't based in fact. We also aren't saying, well, someone's never going to change because we don't know that. I don't want anybody to bank all their hope on this person's going to change. And we just can't predict that they will never change. And that's why I try to remind people like we are accepting the past because we know the past, we can't change. Time travel hasn't happened yet. Um, at least that we know of, right? We can't do that. Um, we can't force other people to be different. You know, there is beginning and end to things. We can accept that. Um, that there is limitations sometimes. There are reasonable limitations on things. But we're not trying to accept just absolutely everything, and especially things that could change. Like if you're in a toxic relationship, we could accept that that person has behaved in a toxic way or abusive way up until this point. We could accept that, you know, we struggled, we were, you know, the victim of that tox toxicity. But we're not trying to accept that I'm always going to be struggling with this person because we could also work towards change where they're no longer in your life. Right. Or maybe you go to therapy, depending on what it is. But we, we're not trying to, I guess, project into the future and just assume and accept something that we don't know with 100% certainty. You know, and I think sometimes that's where people get tripped up is because they try to think, well, I have to accept everything. Right. And I don't want anybody to think acceptance means, well, throw your hands up. That's what it is. I can't do anything. And it's like, wait a minute. There could be some things we could do to try and ease our own suffering, you know, setting boundaries, um, making changes to our routine, relocating, switching jobs. Um, myself in this really uh, 
like horrific spot of radical needing radical acceptance. It was like December it was 2021. And I, at the time, like it felt like everything in my life, I had said this before, was like up in flames. So I was, you know, at my old job and a supervisor there that I really, really liked working with. I worked with him pretty much the whole time I was there. He was a great support. He was suddenly leaving. Um, I had gotten sick with COVID for the first time. And so I could not even be at home with family for Christmas. Um, we had a pretty sudden death in our family and it was just, it was horrific. And I think at that point I was just so angry. I was having all these panic attacks. I was really struggling. I felt so stuck and it did take all of that for me to realize, well, okay, I can't change those things, but what could I change? And I started thinking about going into private practice, you know, cause I ended up having to carry responsibility for what my job was at the time, as well as his job. And so all of that really forced my hand in a way that I was like, okay, you could continue to stay here. That's an option, but you may be miserable. You can um, try and figure out a different way to go about your job. You can switch jobs. You know, you can continue to go to therapy. You could go to a grief group. Like there were so many ways that I was like, all right, I could make some changes. It doesn't change the painful things that have happened. I accept that. And I know that I don't need to be stuck anymore. I could make some changes. So it's always right that balance between acceptance and change and DBT. Yeah, I had that pretty recently too. Um, we had a very traumatic event um, in January 10 of 2023 and everything went downhill from there. Um, I couldn't function, I couldn't eat, I couldn't sleep. And then even worse, my business took a turn that mm -hmm. financially, at one point we didn't have where to live. I had to, I couldn't yeah. afford rent and we were, we were homeless pretty much. Mm -hmm. um, and I had to go live with friends. I had some mm -hmm. amazing friends that opened their home for me. And I reached out to, do you know, Blazy Gary? I think so. Is yeah. She, I attended a training of his before he does. Yeah. He's yeah, amazing. He's mm -hmm. amazing. And I reached out to him and we were talking and he said, well, you, there's just one thing you could do. You gotta, you gotta practice radical acceptance. I mean, you don't have many choices here because I don't have family to, to fall back on. If I don't have the money, if I'm on the streets, I'm alone. Mm -hmm. And he told me that and I'm like, oh my God, what, how? And right. I remember thinking, I know I have to, but I, I mean, I was just so upset with everything. I felt like I'm, back not to back to square one but back to square negative one mm -hmm. uh not having an income not having a place to live i, I was i was i was shattered yeah. and i think it took me a couple of weeks to start accepting it but once i was able mm -hmm. to start accepting and i think this is the important part is once you can accept it and it wasn't that i want to be in that situation ever again or i wanted to stay in that situation i was able to start thinking about the future and what i can do to make my future better mm -hmm. right. so i needed that radical acceptance just to start building my life mm -hmm. back up mm -hmm. and that um you know it's like and that i think is that acceptance and change right of there can be limitations on the future. And it's also true that we have options and it's the willingness, right? To look at those options and try to, which one is the most effective, which one is going to get me closer to where I would like to be and not further away from it. And, you know, so when hearing you say that, like, that's, that's really tough. And so in a way, I'm glad that you took that message of like, I need to find a way to practice radical acceptance because 
you were in a situation with circumstances that you weren't able to change right then and there. You know, it would take time to get there. And I've, I've been in that position myself where it's like, okay, you know, what can I start doing to try and shift things? Even the smallest thing that I could do right now that might help make the situation better. Yeah. And at the time, I remember thinking if there was only a magical wand that I could just use to get myself to accept it, because it's not easy. That's why I I, this is one of the most difficult things when you're in a tough situation to accept it. Right. (laughs) It's very painful. And I found, though, like when I started practicing it, such like a feeling of freedom, because I used to feel so tied down by all those experiences of like, I can't accept this because it means they got away with it. You know, when I think about my trauma and it's like, but wait a minute. Okay. Did they really get away with it? Because we don't know. I don't know where these people are. People that I, you know, had been traumatized by. I don't know that. But what I do know is that we have to live with ourselves and they have to carry around the fact that they did certain things. They have to live with that too. And, you know, I think about that a lot and it's, what does it mean to get away with something? You know, do you believe in karma? I know I do. Like for some people, it's like, what do you believe happens to us? I guess that's sort of individualized, but I do believe that those things do come back to us. What we do does come back to us. And we may not always be there to see what happens to somebody that's harmed us. And I try to remind myself, I can feel confident and comfortable in the fact of knowing that something, you know, karma wise does happen, right? Like you go through an experience, you learn from it, but in a lot of ways, I think for me, that helped to accept stuff because it was like, okay, I don't need to be witness to whatever happens to know that in some way, something does, something comes back around, you know? Um, and in carrying, you know, like in my refusal to accept something, it still harmed me. In a lot of ways, it felt like they were still winning because of the fact yeah. that it had this impact on me. And so through acceptance, I was like, wait a minute, maybe that means that they're no longer winning because through acceptance, I find peace and I get to move forward and you don't get to have that effect on me anymore. You know, I get to reclaim myself and the ways that I had maybe lost myself through some of those traumas, you know, and also through every single experience, we are changing something, right? And so here I, who I am today is very different than who I was 20 years ago. And, and thankfully it is different, you know? Yeah. Yeah. One another thing that helped me with radical acceptance, and this could be like, it could seem just the opposite that you want to do. Um, while I was living with my friends, and I was in a, <laughs> I was emotionally was not doing well at all. Um, I would practice, and it sounds crazy because I didn't have much to be grateful for, but I practiced gratefulness every night before I went to bed, I'd list three things I'm grateful for. And it wasn't easy, believe me, because when you're in such sure. a situation, it's like, what am I grateful for? Um, mm-hmm. But that helped me, that that actually helped me, so. That's a, a, a great practice though. I always recommend that. Um, it doesn't sound crazy to me because I think that's also like gratitude doesn't have to mean like doing cartwheels in a field of daisies happy, right? It can just be, I feel grateful that I have a roof over my head tonight. Like, yeah. and that is in a way acceptance, right? I am recognizing I have a roof over my head tonight and that is true. Um, you know, you can find gratitude in the fact that like, one of the things I struggle with a lot is body image. And so I try to practice, you know, my gratitude with that. Well, you have a body that is healthy. You have legs that work. Like, you know, you are able to function. 
you know, I have some chronic pain, but I also try to remind myself like it's manageable at least now. And so trying to recognize, right, that I do feel grateful for that. It doesn't mean also at the same time that I don't struggle. It just means that there are parts of this that I, like you said, I'm recognizing, okay, this I do feel grateful for. Yeah. Is there anything in DBT that you would change or you think it's good as as it is? I mean, I do think, so there are some sort of like offshoots of DBT. So there's um, prolonged exposure, which is a, a part of DBT that can address trauma. Um, there's also... I'm drawing a blank now, but there is a type of DBT that's specific to control disorders, um, radically open DBT. That's what it's called, radically open. And so they have some offshoots that they've done to really address specific things. I would love to see some of the material, I think, more updated because the first time I was teaching the skills, I was teaching it to a group of people. And these are people that had been homeless. Some were still homeless. Some, I mean, they all had just gone out of the prison system. And I'm telling them about, you know, crisis skills. And one of the crisis skills is like self-soothe, right? With the five senses. And some of the suggestions, you know, things like take a bubble bath. And I'm suggesting this to somebody that doesn't have access to it. I don't want that to be the thing they're hearing because they're going to be like, well, this isn't going to work for me. And they're going to shut down and they're not going to want to do it. And I, how could I blame them? And so now, you know, part of what I do is we kind of laugh a little bit because, yeah, some of the suggestions you could do, some maybe are less impactful, I think one is like send emails. Like nobody wants to do that to try to cope with things. Like send emails. <laughs> like this, the people were shut in. I was like, we're trying to be less depressed, I think. Um, but I think for me, it's like changing sort of the way that the the worksheets are set up. Um, I have already adapted some of them slightly, I think, to just flow better the way that I teach them. Um, like checking the facts. My qualm with it is there's so many steps that I'm like, how are you ever going to remember like seven to eight steps to check the facts? So I came up with this highlighter method. I actually think I did a post on my Instagram about it too, where all they need is a sheet of paper and two highlighters and a pen. And I just tell them, just write down whatever you can think of. Don't worry about whether it's a fact and assumption, just write it down, make a list. Then we go back through and we highlight like each statement, one color for it's definitely a fact. The other color is it's not a fact, it's more an assumption and emotion. And then when you're done, you count up how many do you have of each color. And if you have more of one color, then that tells you, right, let's say the facts are more highlighted. Well, we know if the facts and we check them, it makes sense that it, okay, the emotion probably makes sense, right? But if you have more of the opposite color, then maybe your emotion is coming more from assumptions in this story and you could do opposite action. And people are like, that makes so much sense. I'm like, yes. I, I love it. Fully respect. I fully respect the handout. I do. But I'm like, there are so many steps. I also have ADHD. And I'm like, how am I going to remember seven steps? So anything I can do to make it more likely that they're like, yes, I'll do that. That's easier. We're going to do it. You know, I do a wise mind T chart, which is like one side is your logic, one side's emotions. You take the situation, you break it down into what's logical, what's emotional, and then you put it back together, right, in a wise way. And so, like doing all these things, like helps them, I think, to really see, oh, I can use this skill. Um, because I always joke and say, if people are like, well, just teach wise mind, tell them it's intuition. I'm like, well, 
if I knew what, how to tap into my intuition, I wouldn't be here right now. Like, (laughs) you know, like if we all knew how to do that, we wouldn't be sitting here. Right. Like half the time they're like, I don't know if something is intuition or anxiety. And I'm like, you're right now I'm confused. Like I'm confused too. So I try to find different ways of teaching it where I'm like, okay, does this make sense? And the group gives me great feedback. They're like, yes, we like this. We didn't like this. Um, you know, so I'm always trying to be adaptable with the material because I also, you know, when you have people who are neurodivergent in the group or people with trauma, I have to account for that and, and recognize that like some people are not great at reading emotions and that's like neurodivergence. It's like, well, okay, so how do I then teach you how to observe emotion in someone else? I do lots of role play when it comes to interpersonal. The group Usually they hate it. I, I have yet to find a group where everybody's in love with the idea. <laughs> Usually they're like, I'm not showing up to that group. So I, I technically stop <laughs> telling them when it's going to happen. Because they'll be like, guess what? I'm, my, my dog is sick. This is happening. I'm like, I'm just not going to tell them. Um, but I do the role play with them. And I call myself like the Meryl Streep of therapeutic role play. So we do the role play, right? Like if we were doing it now and you were like, I have this situation, you would play you, I would play the other person. I mean, I get into it. If I could do costume changes and everything on Zoom, I would. So we do that and then we switch roles and I play you, you play this person and I encourage them, give me a tough time. I'm gonna model for you how to use the skill. The rest of the group is taking notes for this person and then they give feedback like what did you see us do and we write that down and it's such a good way to practice that skill because otherwise it's like you don't you don't always see yourself you know when you're talking to other people so we don't know what our face is doing um my therapist is always like are you presenting yourself as uh, approachable or friendly in public and i'm like oh is my face doing that thing again so i have to remember right i may not know that i'm doing that so Doing role play, I think, changes a lot of those skills for people. Even doing that with like practicing opposite action, like a dress rehearsal, like show me what you're going to do, I think really goes a long way. Like I'm always like, my, my aim is always to figure out how do I make these skills easier for you to remember and use them? Because you're, you're putting all this time and effort and sometimes, you know, finances behind this. I want to make sure you're actually taking something from this. So, right. Yeah. Thank you so much, Erin, for sharing this with us today and for giving us your time and expertise. Thank you so much for joining us on today's BPD Bravery Show. If you've enjoyed it, then like, share, and subscribe if you haven't already. Make sure to tune into our show every Monday and Friday. And remember, you are so much more than your BPD.